Ah, uh, well, listeners, as planned, my very, very special guest for you this evening is uh, an Australian, one of Australia's original king of pop, Mr. Normie Rowe. How are you, Normie? Yeah, good. Thanks, Phil. Yeah, terrific. Fantastic stuff, my friend. Fantastic stuff. First of all, before we start our uh, our little phone chat, I like to call them phone chat, not interviews. Uh, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. My listeners are going to be absolutely thrilled, and uh, it's so good to have you on the show. My pleasure. Now, first thing, let's go right back. Let's go right back to when you first started your career, which was in the early early sixties. You had some fantastic hits. Um, I guess, I guess your what would have been your first hit? It ain't necessarily so. Do you, that would have been your first one. Ain't or, necessarily so. It was recorded in nineteen sixty-five. Early. Yes. Uh, by that time, I had been singing in dances around Melbourne right. uh, for for about six years. Uh, I started. I started when I was uh, twelve, thirteen. Singing yep. and dances, and then I was an overnight success. But it took seven years or six years <laughs> to be an overnight success. But basically, you know, it was that recording uh, plus the popularity that of uh, of all the artists on the Go Show, which came out of Melbourne during that time. Right, right. Now I did. I've done a little bit of research about you, and I understand that back in the day, EMI had the chance to sign you up. But they said you couldn't sing. <laughs> Boy, wouldn't, yeah. the, wouldn't the guy who made that decision be good, have got a kick in the pants? They reckon you couldn't sing. Yeah, well, um, I've been accused of that a number of times by people, funnily enough, who'd never ever heard me sing. Okay. So uh, um, it, it came up a bit later on when uh, a, a lady by the name of Maria Prorauer who has left us now, I believe, but she was the opera writer for The Australian. Right. And when I received the the, the, um, information, the, the news that I'd got the lead role in Les Miserables, she said, Normie Rowe in the balcony-busting role of Jean Valjean mm. in Les Miserables? Yep, yep. You've got to be kidding. Yeah. And obviously she'd never seen me sing before, and, and it's re- I just looked at it and I thought, well, yeah, just goes to show people are, you know, they can be really judgmental without any having any objectivity. Well, I, I got to tell you, but in, I actually looked that up because uh, it is there is a clip of that on YouTube for for my listeners who want to actually have a look at you singing. Um, bring him home. What, what an incredible performance. I mean, you obviously were, were born to not only sing but to perform on the stage because that was quite quite a, uh, an amazing performance in that particular role. Yeah, well, it was uh, obviously, a, um, I think it's been the centre point of my life, but, uh, you know, a thing like that, for the musical theatre, it was sort of, I suppose, akin to playing Hamlet or, or Richard III or something like that. You know, Absolutely. it was just one of those standout roles, but there were a lot of standout roles in that particular production. You know, it was pretty marvellous. But so, that was, that's further down the road. We're getting back to, to yes. that necessarily. So uh, I, I sort of, um, I Belong With You, which was um, Bobby and Laurie's first record, uh, got to I think it was number three in Sydney. Yes, and uh, and I recorded in the same venue uh, in Melbourne, which is now a, a, a sort of a, a music club uh, these days. Uh, and the, the engineer was Bill Armstrong, the producer was Pat Alton, the Playboys, 
Um, the, the vocal backing was uh, the Four Kinsmen, the original Four Kinsmen, and uh, Marcy Jones and another one of the other girls, uh, I think it was Pat Carroll, uh, Dave Howard, all of the Playboys. Like the vocal backing was across the board around about, I think, 12 or 14 singers. Um, who and when you listen to it, ain't necessarily so uh, without any distractions. It's quite amazing that it was all recorded on a single track machine. Okay, I mean there were there there were overdubs, but we we overdubbed uh, did a thing called bouncing in those days where you'd you'd play back the original track and then record another three tracks because we had three channels that would feed into one track on the machine. Uh-huh. And uh, and so there was – it's amazing to listen to it and realise that the thing that we always worried about was a thing called generation loss. And uh, every time you did an overdub, you lost a, a bit of the quality. Well, uh-huh. the genius really was in, in the ear and the, the knowledge of Bill Armstrong, who was – it was a doyen of the recording industry in Australia. Okay. Just one thing I wanted to ask you about that first song, and ain't necessarily so. That, look, that, that was a, some of the lyrics in that, that would have been a bit challenging for a lot of people back in that time. Plus, you, you had long hair back in those times, so you're sort of challenging the lyrics of what's going on in the Bible. How, how, did, how did your audiences handle that one? Well, I understand that the song is from Porgy and Bess, yes, and I, uh, I suppose we, I, I suppose we took it out of context. It was a song by the character Sporting Life, and I suppose we took it out of context, which raised a lot of eyebrows, especially with with uh, the the very conservative church-going uh, organisations such as the Catholic Church, um, who owned the radio station in Sydney, Two SM, Two Santa Maria. Right. And uh, they did what I think was made a really silly move. Uh, they banned the record. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> and that- of course, you know, if you want somebody to buy in those days, especially if you wanted to have somebody buy your uh, whatever your output, whether it be a record or a book or or a television show or whatever, uh, all you have to do is create a controversy, and uh, it would be. Um, it'd be a walk-up start for a success. And we didn't even try to do that. I mean, I I just looked at it as a song that was had a little bit of a gospel-y sort of feel to it. Um, but uh, it, the kids just loved it. It was off the wall compa- com- compared to what uh, the general run of the way music was going. Um, and I suppose it stood out in the way that the, the Seekers uh, in, and their success stood out in amongst the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Uh, it was just something different to listen to. Indeed, indeed. And such a good song, though. I mean, even at the time. So t- now- well, it was, brilliantly, it was brilliantly rearranged by Pat Alton, who put all the, uh, the key changes in and uh, put the... Um, made it uh, he I think he in another world created the wall of sound that Phil Spector was so famous for and and at that stage neither of them had had, had produced the big hits yet so um, you know that wall of sound if you listen to it it's, it's, it's a much bigger sound than you ever thought 
uh, would come out of a four-piece band and and a couple of vocal backing singers and uh, and, and a, a pop singer had never recorded before. Right, <laughs> right. And then and you moved on with with you had like ten hits, didn't you? About ten or twelve hits in your early part yeah, of there, your career. I think there were there were there were eleven there were eleven top ten records. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And um, yeah, because I remember your second one, "I Who Have Nothing." Yes, that was uh, um, that was rather a love of mine. I I first uh, was aware of it with uh, uh, with Benny King um, and Laurie Allen of the Bobby and Laurie duo had a band called the Blue Jays, right? Which ended up being Tony Worsley's band, mm-hmm. and the Blue Blue Jays would. They were a bit of a show band, and they would come to our dance in in Melbourne, and every now and then, and they they would draw a crowd, and they everybody loved uh, them because they did sort of big big production big production numbers, and and Laurie would stand there with this big timpani drum. I thought that's great. <laughs> it's really good. So I mean, I was inspired by a number of people, but I just, I always loved Benny King's. Um, version of that, and I wanted to record it at some stage. Uh, and even the um, uh, even the the the, uh, the photo of the album that that came from, um, I I des- I basically designed that. I said I wanted it just sort of black and white and mm-hmm. and ha- full of emotion and um, and that which when I look back at it, think about a seventeen year old. <laughs> wanting to create that that uh, uh, atmosphere was quite an amazing thing, you know. And this, well, I don't know that I could do that today. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, and- I, you know, I, uh, the thing I, I love about young people is they don't know they can't. <laughs> they don't know they can't. No, there's no such word as can't in their vocabulary, isn't it? It's just no, I couldn't. It. Either they they want to do it or they couldn't be bothered. It's just that I can't do it. If you had it. any experience, you would know that you can't do that. But <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, and they go ahead and, and are incredibly successful. Absolutely. <laughs> and speaking of incredibly successful, you had your third, which was your, a double A-sided thing, wasn't it? Case Sarasara, Doris Day, and then shaken all over. That's when it just went absolutely wild for you in the industry, didn't it? Really? Yeah, and you know, both of those songs weren't were, or neither of those songs were actually planned for the album. Um, okay. And we we we'd run two tracks short, and uh, we'd been doing shaken all over anyway, just as a song in in our show. And Kesara, I had been trying to get the Playboys to learn Kesara for. Uh, probably three or four years at that stage. Anyway, they went out, learned it, came back, and we recorded the. I think we put the album down in about two days. Wow! Um, so it took no time at all. I mean, I can hear. I I had uh, severe nasal and sinus congestion in those days when I was recording Shaking All Over and I could hear the adenoids, uh, swollen adenoids going, oh, but shake it all over. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but people, uh, people, unless I point it out, uh, people don't, don't sort of hear it funnily enough. It's, you never, and I, I suppose what I, I should agree to my own adage that you never point out your mistakes no. but other people might not have seen them. <laughs> I'm, 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 next time I play that, and I'm actually going to play um, either before this this uh, this 
chat or or I'll play it after the chat. Um, I'm not sure yet where I'm going to place it in, but um, I, I've never actually heard anything like that. That's that's interesting that you should tell us. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, I should have shut up. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, maybe, maybe you should. I don't know, but um, oh, it's good. To, it's good to know that anyway. Um, so, so tell me, like you were, you were a, a, a superstar riding on a huge wave. You went to England and you you were doing shows over there and touring over there back in the sixties with the Trogs and um, some. Uh, I'm trying to think of the other people you were, you were working with. Uh, uh, well, the the big one for me was uh, was Gene Pitney. Gene Pitney, yes. Whom, whom I he was m- one of my big idols. Gene Pitney, Roy Orbison. Now my singing teacher Jack White taught so many great Australians. Uh, Johnny Johnny Farnham, I believe, when he was young, had he had some input into John singing. He had some input into uh, there was a wonderful singer in Melbourne by the name of Colin Cook. And I, I asked Cookie, because he used to sing Orbison songs and Pitney songs and all. And I go, wow, how do you do that? Yeah. Um, and I said, how do you? he said, I, I, well, I've got a singing teacher. And I said, can I get his name? And I went off to, to see Jack White for, oh, I guess I, I was with him for three years before I went on the road. Uh-huh. And, I, you know, I was religious about my practice. Every day I'd practice for at least an hour. Uh, I do all the breathing exercise, all the stuff that you really need to be able to, you know, be well, to be a, um, a professional performer. Right. You know, so it. Yeah, uh, uh, I think you really need to put in the hours. You know, it doesn't matter what you play, whether it's a guitar or or a trumpet or or your instrument is your voice. You have to put in the hours. Absolutely, absolutely. Um. Now, you, you, as I was about to say, you were riding on this crest of a wave and you, you were Australia's king of pop, really, back in the day. And you went to England and then you had to come back to Australia because you were uh, had to put your name down for the conscription for the Vietnam War. That's right. So tell I us a bit back. about that, Normie. I came back, I think I, I arrived back on a Saturday. I did a concert at Festival Hall in Melbourne on the Sunday and then on the Monday, I flew to Sydney to the Sydney uh, post office and filled in my my uh, forms for the national service. And and I didn't realise by doing that they would ban me from going back to the UK and continuing continue what we'd started and were starting to be quite successful at doing. Uh, and that is to make some some headway in. Uh, Recording in in the UK, uh, we just had. Uh, it, it, it's not easy. And Ulala, Ulala was had got to. Well, Ulala was the first one that got into the top twenty in the UK. Okay. Uh, and then I, uh, it's not easy was about to be released, and then I went home, and because it's not easy had been played extensively in Australia, and I, I came home and. And blow me down. Uh, they they tell me, okay, you put your papers in, you can't leave Australia. Cash oh. never come back. That's, that's exactly oh. right. Yeah. So how right. you how do you realise that though, Normie? How do you realise that? What would what do you think you would have done? Because you were in England, you were performing, touring. You're on this crest of a wave. Do you think you would have come back anyway? Did you have to come back? Well, I was in a 
I, I had a bit of a dilemma there because I was really lonely. I, you know, I mean, I've always loved Australia. I had, I've never really had any ambitions of of uh, making anywhere else my home, and um, and and I haven't. Uh, and maybe that's my glass ceiling to a certain extent. But um, I, 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 I certainly know that it's. Uh, we mentioned John Farnham before, and I know that it's John, I reckon, anyway, that it's John's glass ceiling because I'm sure that uh, his manager, Glenn Wheatley, would love to have been able to, you know, put John into the international stage like that. But, uh, you know, I, I don't think John wanted to – he felt out of his uh, comfort zone, I think, you mm-hmm, know. Mm-hmm. So, uh, which everybody everybody's entitled to. Yeah. So um, anyway, uh, had I? Well, I don't know. I'm I'm not the draft dodging sort of person. No, not at all. You know, not at all. But you um, had a career I, that was, you know, that was pretty much destroyed after after you made that decision, which is which is pretty tragic, really. That there was a very heavy price to pay for you. Well, it was, especially the way it was done, because in fact, if. The government had been honest about it on the day. They, I would never have been called up. It, they, they kept having ballots because because uh, Harold Holt needed some good publicity about the con- conscription. They kept having ballots until they got me, and it was a, the idea of a, the uh, um, the the military attaché to the to the uh, Prime Minister, he, he said, what you need is an Elvis Presley. You need to get Normie Rowe called up. And he said, well, who's Normie Rowe? Oh, he's a big Australian pop star and, and popular with the kids. Oh, okay, so let's have him. Okay. Um, and there was once I, once I was called out, I started to realise there was something funny when – I was touring in WA, and uh, I uh, <clears throat> I was at Kalgoorlie, and the phone rang downstairs, and they said, "It's for you, Normie." And I came down. In those days, hotels only had one phone. <laughs> uh, I went downstairs, and I answered, and and the guy said, um, "Yeah, look, I'm from from the uh, the Canberra Press Gallery." Uh, how do you feel now that you've been called up? And I said, <laughs> "Wow, I haven't been called up. I don't know. Mm. Oh, yeah, you have, but I don't know. I haven't been called up because you haven't oh, been notified. Have been. How do you feel?" I said, "How do I feel? I don't know. And how do you know? How would you know anyway?" Yes. Oh, we 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 have our ways. And I went, oh, "Okay." So I hung up, and I phoned Mum and Dad, and I said. Uh, had you? Because remember, I was only twenty. That's I was correct. Yeah. Barely twenty. Yep. And and uh, I I said, have you had any uh, information about the national service? I said no. So we went on with our tour. We did Albany and uh, a couple of other places, and then came back to Bunbury. And I was at the radio station in Bunbury, and they said, "There's a phone call from your parents at the." Uh, uh, down at reception. So I went down to reception and I, I was talking and mum said, we just got the letter in the mail that you, you, you've been called up. And that was about five days later. So the press knew five days before I did. And I thought to myself, you know, 
that's that's really a personal thing. Absolutely. You know, it's an intimate part of your life. Why would somebody else be allowed to know that? Uh, so it was obviously leaked by by the federal government of the day, by Howard Holt's government. Yes. It was leaked by him or his government or his publicity handlers. Um, and uh, the information, that shouldn't have been in their hands anyway. It should have been in the hands of the Department of Labor and National Service. So they, there was somebody there who told, who had political connections to tell the, the um, political party to, who was going to make hay out of it, you know. So I just, uh, I said, I, I accepted it. I was pretty depressed for about six weeks. So I, I, that, that was probably the first indication of depression, which is it was a nat- natural, nat- natural natural thing, yeah, of course, uh, for most uh, for most young young blokes who were called up. They, mm-hmm. you know? So, um, I uh, I accepted what was going to happen, but then when uh, I, I could see from the day that I was I went, presented myself for national service and. Um, Till about uh, a week later, I started to realise that all they wanted to do was have people poking cameras at me the whole time. Yeah, and I said, "Hang on," I, I ended up going to the uh, uh, well, uh, some people up the chain of command to me, and I said, "I didn't. I, I'm not in this for for the publicity. Yes, you know, I've I've been called up. I just want to do my job the way that everybody else has done it. I'm not really." I'm not interested in better treatment, and I'm certainly not interested in worse treatment. I won't be doing any press, uh, and I won't be won't pick up a guitar and sing unless it unless I decide I want to do it. Oh, 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 oh all right. And then I I got to know the uh, the press, the major who was in charge of. The press uh, uh, communications at Pakapanyal, uh, Major Robin Cooper, who was a lovely man, and I told him how I felt, and he he ended up playing um, uh, playing defence for me. You know, he was in front of the game the whole time. He was just a marvellous bloke. Um, and right through my whole two years in the army, there were people wanting to take photos and all that sort of thing, and I got to know a couple of them, uh, whom I trusted. And I knew that they weren't going to turn it into some, some sort of, uh, um, you know. I, I, I was I was concerned that if I if I wasn't doing my job properly, somebody might get hurt. Okay. And it might not be me, and then I'd have to live with that for okay. the rest of my life. But but you know? how how would it have made you feel, Normie? You you they got you because of who you were, pop star. They wanted to turn you into a celebrity soldier. I mean, like similarly with Elvis. I mean, why? How would you have felt when you realised that they got you by constantly, um, you know, redoing the ballot until they managed to get your name out? Well, I didn't know that until no, more no, recently. You, yes. So, so how do you feel it. now? How do you feel now? Because you've known about it for oh. a number of years. So well, angry. To a certain extent, Phil. To to a certain extent. It's sliding doors. Uh-huh. What might have happened if if that door hadn't have been opened in that direction? It happened to have opened in the in the old direction. Would 
might I have had the success that we were aiming for in the in the UK? Uh, my suspicion is yes. I think we probably would, right? Because I I had an eye on what everybody else was doing and what I needed to do, what sort of work I had to put in, when I was never scared of the work, uh, to achieve what they were achieving. So I think, yeah, eventually we would have had some success on the recording thing. There would have been television. There would have been perhaps some stage shows, maybe pantomimes and things like that um, in the UK, and and eventually perhaps some some success in the US. But in in uh, uh, in in the long term, you know, I I was I was called up. I was in the army. Uh, I spent two years out of the industry um, completely, and then then there was a, about uh, a year that I spent in the UK out of the the industry in Australia. So. Um, it was that, and then when I came back, we started to do this tour. When we came back, uh, it initially was slow, but it really took off in, in between um, July and December '67. And then, of course, in uh, January '68, I was called up. So, uh, who knows? Who knows what might have happened? Yeah. Um, but the thing is that I I've had a very healthy disrespect. Of politicians, yes, um, and a suspicion that they will do anything to improve their own personal lot, uh, and they're not really interested in in uh, representing their constituents. They're re- inter- interested in representing themselves, and by and the way that they do that is to uh, ingratiate themselves for their to their own in political party. Look, um, I, I don't, I don't know, Normie, how anybody though. Let's let's just put your music career aside for just a moment. I mean, from what I understand, they got you by constantly, I'm going to say, fiddling the ballot until they got you. Now, what about if, God forbid, you'd been killed? A mother's lost a son, and a father's lost a son, and all because they wanted to have a pop star in the army. I mean, Phil, my goodness. Phil, 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 yep. Phil, sorry, slow down. Yeah. All you have to do is look at what's happening in Victoria at the moment with the the inquiry in, into the hotel uh, quarantine situation. Right. All the politicians and all the people who had, who were paid, let's face it, they're getting paid mm-hmm. $700,000 a year. Yep to have the responsibility to make the decisions, and they don't remember who did it. <laughs> yeah. yeah okay. You know, yeah. One, per- one, person, one person's life doesn't matter to them. Mm. If, if all the people who have died since that hotel quarantine debacle took place, if all of those people died and nobody is responsible for it, why would they bother being responsible for a pop singer who, you know, was was a bit of fluff on on their 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 egos are immense. I have never I've never seen a pop star with a, a, an ego as big as a politician's. No, and I've, I've spoken to a, n- a number of them, and I just, I just they they have this thing that 
they're somewhere just above God, you know, and they're not responsible for anything, you know. I'm, I'm looking at, at the politicians who are running the show down in Victoria, uh, and, and you look at it and say, well, don't you understand that the buck stops with you? You know, you put the people in charge to look after that. And you have to take the risk. If, if my manager makes a mistake, it's on me. It's not on him. Right. Yep. I've yep. given him. I've given him the responsibility to make decisions on my behalf. Mm. Okay. If he if he buggers it up, then I can't go back to him and say, oh, "Look, you buggered it up." I might say to him, "Let's not do that that one again." Right. Right. But every. You know, unfortunately in Australia, we have got this ethos that says it's not my fault, it's no. not my fault. Yeah. And when was the last time to, that somebody you know had a car accident and, and, and actually said it was my fault, that car accident? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I'd have to really think hard. Well, yeah, actually, it why happened. Would, why I actually, would, yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah. Why would Why would you have to think about that? Surely, if it was your fault yeah. or somebody, if it was the, the responsibility of the person who was driving or whatever, yes. Surely they can say, "Yeah, look, I I buggered that up." I think. I think in older times, yeah. It, yeah. It, it, it used to be the Australian way. Yes, we've got absolutely. now. We've got this ethos where. We say it's pure and simple. We say it's not my fault. No, everybody's looking for and a I loophole. Really think, well, look, the federal government uh, paid uh, something like thirty million dollars for the block of land for the for the Western Sydney Airport that was worth uh, three million. Now, mm. who made that decision? Who made that that person? That person should have to pay the money back. Yep. Yeah. And if they can't pay the money back, then they should be made to go broke. Can you imagine all of a sudden people would be making good decisions right, left and centre? Mm, yeah. If you were responsible were responsible for your stuff For your up. decisions and your actions, exactly. And so you ask me, you ask me, <laughs> uh, surely these people might might have a conscience. Well, surely, surely uh, you've got to be joking. I'd, yeah, I, I, look, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I couldn't imagine. I'm, if that was me making that decision, and then I've because me in this the way I'm listening to this and the way I've heard it and the way I've researched it, what happened to you never should have happened in relation to the subscription. And if that was me and you'd been killed, I don't know how I'd forgive myself. But then you're not a politician. No, I'm not. I'm not. And I'm you're a, not a bureaucrat. No, no. And, and they I, only see numbers. They see numbers. They don't see names. No, no. Well, in your situation, let, then, let me tell you something. Yes. Let me tell you something. I delivered on on a uh, uh, long can day on uh, Vietnam Veterans Day yes. this year, yeah. 18th of August. I delivered a, an address at a um, uh, at, at a, a local RSL, a suburban RSL in Brisbane, and. It, that morning I was listening and uh, Darren Chester, who was the um, the Minister for Veterans Affairs, said there were something like 69,000 Australians who served in Vietnam. 
Okay. And I thought, isn't that amazing? Because they've just found another 9,000. Okay. Because there was, there was, there was a little over 50, or oh, there's more than nine, not maybe, maybe 15,000. But when we did the welcome home, we knew of getting on to 60,000, and now there's 69,000. We knew that there were 504 killed in action. Mm-hmm. Now there's 520. Okay. Why, do, why don't they, didn't they know exactly how many served and exactly how many were killed? Well, you would expect them to know. On the day, on the day today. You would expect them to know that, wouldn't you? The in name of time, every person. The name of every person who, who served and the name of every person who, who didn't come home. Should have known. You would expect them to know, yes. It should have been in the records. For sure. For sure. You know, look, please don't. I think we're going, going to have to leave this. Yes, you know, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm not. And I'm not blaming one political party or another. I okay. think they are all part of the same brush. Yep. And, I, I, you know, I wouldn't trust any of them as far as I could kick, kick them down the road. That's my sentiments, exactly. Because the minute they get into power, their promises are forgotten. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it, it's all about trying to, you know, feather their own nest, as yes. my old man used to say. Absolutely. All right, Normie, let's just move away from that then. Just a fraction. You came back. Your career never, ever really took off again. We had a new king of pop, which is, I think was Johnny Farnham. We've mentioned his name. He kind of taken over the music scene. And when you came back, it, it had to have changed you. Anybody in a situation of war comes back with scars, even if they're not physical scars. And I understand yeah. that the... the um, for a long, 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 long time, you know, nobody really knew what was going on with, with men and women, um, victims of war. Now we understand all about post, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, and I understand that you suffered with that quite badly at, so, at some yeah. point. Yeah, probably not as bad as most and, yep. and probably worse than some. Uh-huh. But the thing is that, until the Vietnam veterans, when you think about it, yes. this is this is the the first military force where it was the most educated Australian military force we've ever had. Uh-huh. Okay. Yes. Um, and because you know, if it was only taken on the, your birth dates that were drawn out of that barrel. So it didn't matter how old you were, what you did for a living, what you did before, blah, 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 blah. You were just called up and thrown in. And, and I, I was in a recruit, uh, a recruit um, uh, <coughs> training uh, platoon. Yes. And one of the guys was a doctor. Right. And he finished his, just finished his time and he decided to go and do – he ended up being a machine gunner in – in a, a an infantry platoon, <laughs> um, it, it just they, like I said, it was the most educated uh, um, military force that Australia had ever had. Mm-hmm. And so, when they came back, and they, and they realised that there was something wrong, then there was the 
intellect and the and the education to be able to to prosecute the cause of the problems that were happening at the end of the second world war every bloke almost every bloke came back now i i know that i had uncles because uh, my mum had uh, 11 sisters, something like that, and they were all married and most of them had been in, in the war. Uncles had been in the RAF and in, in the, the army and all that sort of stuff. And they were, um, some of them, depending on what they did in the war, they were affected mightily and some of them were you, came out of it, you could pretty much say, um, unscathed in relation to what the others were. There was one in particular I know that suffered really badly from PTSD. But PTSD, that, as, a, as a phrase, as a concept, as a, uh, as a diagnosis, had, had not been invented until Vietnam veterans. Okay. So the PTSD that people go through when when uh, they're held up at gunpoint in a bank or something like that. Yes. That didn't exist before, but now we understand. And you know why? Because we had smart Vietnam veterans prosecuting the case. Okay. Um, there were 10% of Vietnam veterans, 10% of, we suspected 50,000, but now there's 60,000. But uh, There were 5,000 Vietnam veterans died either by their own hand or a single car, single occupant uh, car crashes, in other words, by their own hand, Yes. Um, in the first 12 months of them coming back from Vietnam. It's terrible. Terrible. Right. So you have this, this, um, um, this res- a massive group of people who were all educated and, and you know, we weren't of the same generation where you suck it up. My dad, when I came back, my dad said, I'm glad you're back. Now the best thing you can do is forget you ever went and don't mention it ever again. Yeah, easier said than done, though. <laughs> and and so, you know, and God love him and rest his soul, but that was wrong. Yes. That was wrong. The worst thing that could ever have happened is for me not to remember what happened. Yes. You know, I lost a couple of mates over there, personal friends. Uh And, and, um, you know, a lot of people lost a lot more than that, let alone their own personal uh, mental and physical health. Yes. 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 So yeah, and it continues today. You know, it continues today. The young people come back, and they're they're not. They sense that there is that nobody understands them. Um, and uh, you know, maybe maybe we're not doing enough. Maybe the older veterans aren't doing enough to let them know that we do understand them, and and that you know, although. We could be fathers and uncles and grandfathers. Uh, we're also brothers. We're brothers in arms. Do you think it could be a similar thing, though, to what happened to you, Normie? Because, you know, they sent you because they wanted to send you. 
And in relation to uh, PTSD, I mean, I heard you say that if you're in a life-threatening situation for six months, that you will definitely be a victim of PTSD. So what yeah. they what they do is they send them over for five months and then bring them back and send them over again and again and again, and it's accumulative. So are they sneakingly thinking, well, we're just going to keep sending them anyway, but just keep them under that six-month umbrella? I don't know that they even realise. I, 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 if they're realising it, they're they're ignoring it. Uh, this this cumulative uh, uh, response to uh, to war service, um, and then they could say, oh well, there are people over over in the Middle East who have experienced this their whole life. Mm-hmm. You know, well, yeah, you're right. You're right. People experience it, and, and and it becomes their norm. Yes, but it's not the norm of a, a person who who spent the early part of their life here, gone over somewhere, become part of a uh, and it's a violent situation. Yes, you know where people are trying to kill you. You're trying to kill them, or you're trying to stop them from doing something by force, and you know. It's it's it is a violent situation, mm-hmm. and then you come back, and then some some bloody idiot turns around and says, "Oh, you shouldn't have been shooting at people. They got they were going to get hurt. <laughs> they were, well, they were shooting at me. They were shooting at you. So of course, of course, what do you want? You know, yes." Yeah, look, uh, yeah, I can't, I can't imagine somebody coming up with that sort of an analogy. Actually, it's just ridiculous. Obviously, if I don't got understand. To... I don't understand why there's a micros a microscope um, sitting on the table with Ben Robert Smith, VC, yes, uh, on on the on the the glass plate. Why he is he is being ostracised? He's a hero. Mm-hmm. He is an absolute hero, and he deserves to be treated that way, yes. the same as people from previous wars have been treated as heroes. Right. Bloody, you know, it's absurd, and these people are just are not worthwhile spitting on. Well, I was going to ask you a question about the the blow up you had with Norm uh, with um with um. Ron Casey, but I think we I think we've said enough about the war. I think we should stay away from this. I know somebody did ask me to ask you that question. They heard about it, but that, well, actually, one of my listeners I won't say somebody a listener a listener messaged me and said, "Can you ask him? I heard about this this issue on the Today Show, but I don't really know if we need to go into that. I think they should just oh look let let's say briefly yes right the night before I got a call will you will you come and be on I said no I don't want to be on the panel okay um. But, and they, I said, "Where do you, where do you think I said? Oh, you're a monarchist." And I said, "Why would you say that? Mm-hmm. How do you, how would you know? I haven't made any position whatsoever on the monarchy or anything. I just don't understand what the kerfuffle is about having a republic. Oh, well, come on, and you can have another voice, right? And the minute I sat down, Ron Casey started in on me just because I was on that side of the chair. Yes, you know. Yes. Um. And and of course I didn't realise at that stage that Ray Martin was a rabid a rabid uh, um, Republican, okay. um, and and he he generated this whole bloody thing anyway. Oh really? Know? So it was a bit of a and, setup. And, and, and I, but at, at that stage I was suffering from undiagnosed PTSD. Yes, yes. 
I know now that if somebody had asked me to be in that situation, I'd have said no and I'd have stuck to my gun. Right. And so, that, yeah, and in hindsight. But, but, I mean, Ron, Ron started in on on uh, on me, you know, personal abuse and personal attacks, and then nice. having goes at, at my my uh, my brothers in the ex service community, my brothers and sisters in the ex community, ex service community, and I I couldn't abide by that. I, I just wanted to show him that the badge I was wearing wasn't the RFL badge. Just funnily yes. enough, yes. Yes. The day before, I'd been voted as the first president of the um, of the the three, three cab association, mm-hmm. uh, a position I didn't even stand for. Um, I thought it was quite an honour. So thank you very much. And at the end of the first twelve months, I handed that position in because I prefer to be able to speak not on behalf of other people, but on behalf of myself only. Okay. If what I say happens to fall in the realm of understanding and beliefs of all my brothers, then so be it and, and good. But my attitude is I can only, I, I can only comment uh, from my own personal experience on all of these matters. Okay. Well, you, you had a difficult time there and I'm glad to, I'm glad to see that you came back to us. You weren't, you weren't, Victim, injured, killed. You've come back. You've fought through it all, and you're with us today. And you're still performing. You're, you're still recording. This, uh, these recordings that I've got, this is from your latest album. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, there there are a couple of them. Uh, there's the Missing in Action album, which yes. is only available on my website. Yes. I don't, I, I don't want it to be downloaded free of charge. It no. costs too much money. Absolutely. Uh, and there was a there's a bit of family angst when I spent the money to put it together too. So, um, but uh, yeah, it was it was really uh, an important uh, uh, recorded document for me. Yes, yes, something to put together. Well, Very I'm, important. I looked at the songs um, "Living Under the Southern Cross," uh, for yep. example. Now, you didn't write that. But the no. lyrics, the lyrics that I've that I actually, because I've, I've listened to the the lyrics of it, this must really reflect a lot on on you and and what happened, and also other people that were in your situation. So, is that the reason, I guess, why you wanted to record that particular song on this album? Yeah, well, Colin Greatrix, who wrote it, um, also wrote "What Have You Done for Australia," and and I just both of those songs. Struck a struck a chord with me, but I understand that I can't ever sing a song that doesn't mean something to me personally. Okay, I've never done that. I've never done that from the first song I ever sung. Right. I've always sung songs that have meant something personally, because I think that then your heart and soul can be put in that song. I had lunch with Russell Morris the other day, and and. Uh, Thinking on on the wings of the of an eagle, and yes. uh, which he wrote, um, and and uh, the real thing that Johnny Young wrote. Johnny Young wrote that you, one. Yeah. You think about those two songs, mm-hmm. um, uh, written by two different songwriters, but sung by the same song, the same singer. Yes, and you know that they. 
they meant something. The lyric meant something uh, to, to in both situations, in both songs to to Russell when he recorded them, and they still do today. Is why he's so successful even today. Yeah. Well, I was actually I was actually speaking to Russell um, as a guest on my show about a month or so back, and we did ask him about those two particular songs. And the real thing, as you just mentioned, was was written by Johnny Young, and it was really the brainchild of Molly Meldrum, I guess, because he he wanted to. He was the producer, and he wanted that song. And the reason why it ended up being a um, you know an anthem was because of that was his brainchild. Now, when you came back from from well, well, just just go back. Yep. The song itself was John Young's brainchild. The production yes. was 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 Molly. Yeah, Molly Ian, Mildred, Ian, yeah, yeah. Um, was was his his uh, work <laughs> and the record and the recording company's money uh, because we had never recorded with big orchestras or anything at that stage. That's right. Yeah, you know, I, I had because I'd been in England and that's what they did over there. But uh, you know, trumpets and saxes and all that sort of thing, strings and and then spending like five days just recording without the mix. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know, you know, we somebody funded it, you know what I mean? Yes, yes. Anyway, um, it, it was to be one of the great records of uh, of history. And as, uh, as Russell says, you know, Johnny Young, everybody talks about all these wonderful songwriters. No one mentions Johnny Young. And, and yet Johnny Young wrote uh, The Real Thing. He wrote... Smiley for mm-hmm. Ronnie Burns about yes. me. Yes, he wrote um, uh, "I Thank You" for Lionel Rose, Lionel Rose the yes. very first Indigenous number one song. Yes, number one record. Um, he he wrote uh, it was "A Girl Like You." Mm-hmm. He wrote "Here Comes the Star" for Ross Wiley. Ross, I mean, Rossy Wiley. Yeah, <laughs> what a what a plethora of number one records that Johnny Young wrote, and pe- and he doesn't get a look in as no. a songwriter. Most absolutely. Although, Today he is. Today he has been elevated into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and yes. that's where it should should always have been. Absolutely, absolutely. He's actually a chap I'd really, really love to um, speak with on the on the phone. Actually, on the on the interview, you know, if I can ever, if you ever think he might be interested, please pass me on a number because I would most definitely like to talk to Johnny Young. I think he's an incredible talent that a lot of people don't know a lot about his his writing abilities. Fantastic. Well. Yeah, of course I I can do that for sure. Yep, yep. John John and I are still the best of friends. When I go to Perth, I will stay with uh, with John and Marisha, his his beautiful wife, and we we have a lot of fun. Uh, we do a lot of work together. Of course, uh, it'd be it's a walk up start. I can organise that. But Fantastic. but uh, John lives in Perth, and you have to get up. Uh, you have to allow him to get up because he gets up two hours after us. <laughs> okay, all right. Hey, now you're giving away trade secrets. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I mean, I know there's a two. I know there's three a different. Hours, three hours after three hours when daylight saving kicks in with again. The, yeah, with the, with the time change, of course, of course. Matey, let's just talk about your your what's happening for you now because I know that I had Jade Hurley. He was a guest on the show um, about three or four weeks ago, and you had okay, all so, these shows. So what happens? What's what's happening is we're looking forward to doing a tour with Dinah Lee and Jade Hurley. Yes. Um, in we're supposed to be this year. We we ended up dropping about twenty five shows. 
which was a great shame. But uh, we start again in early uh, 2021. Right. And, uh, and and we're also going to be doing uh, another uh, another tour with Colin Hewitt and Johnny Young, wow. um, as well as a new another Go Show Go Show Gold uh, uh, concert tour uh, in 2021. So next year should be a fairly busy time, wow. and and I'm looking forward to. Uh, getting back on the boards again. I did a show last week, last weekend, and it was terrific fun. Yes. Um, but that was the first show for the year. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. I was amazed that I could still remember my name as they said, here he is, Normie Rowe. Who's that? <laughs> <laughs> Who's that man? <laughs> oh, 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 that's me. That's <laughs> I, thought, I, I thought he'd gone to England and never came back. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah. That's fantastic, you know. Like when you say a go show, because I know all the people that performed on that Go album, which um, uh, is is available from Gil Matthews's catalogue from Aztec yeah. Records. Now, are you going to have any of those other performers, or is it? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. We've got um, uh, well, Tony Worsley will probably be there. Is he die? Oh wow. Uh, maybe in Melbourne at least we'll probably have. Um, Rosty Wiley. Oh, uh, Ross is in a wheelchair these days, so it makes it really hard to, to get him around the country. Yes, yes. Um, uh, probably Bobby Bright. Okay. We lost Laurie some time. Bobby and Laurie, we lost Laurie some time back, uh-huh. ten years ago now. Yes. Um, and that was that was a dreadful uh, omission to our to our our over overall sta- uh, stable. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, Yes, it's uh, um, it's a great show. It's a really fantastic show, and everybody gets up and sings their hits. And then yeah. we do uh, usually do a fantastic finale, and we have a uh, a great we have a great time doing it. And the audiences just adore it. Yeah, I can and, imagine. Uh, I can imagine because bringing back all those hits, I remember when uh, they did the Long Way to the Top tour, which is going back a few years ago now, and they had all those legends like Stevie Wright and Cold Joy, and and you were there, you were part of it. Um, absolutely unbelievable show, and what an array of artists! Little Paddy, uh, so many I can't Lonnie, remember. Lonnie Lee, Lonnie Lee, eighty. Yes, yeah, Lonnie turned eighty just recently. He did. He did. Yes, I he'd sp- be he'd be good for you to have a chat to if I've you spoken. haven't already. No, I have already. Actually, uh, I spoke. Oh, to, good. I, I spoke to Lonnie because he he's got a new album out as well. Um, and yeah, I did. Can you believe that at age eighty, he's still putting out albums? Oh, great. absolutely. <laughs> Look, the last man standing, really, really, when you think about it, but still sounding as good as as the day he set up on stage, and we spoke about it, you know, and he just says. Yeah. Unbelievable! Like, do you do you have to do anything special when you get up on stage, Norman? Do you have to do any 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 vocal warm ups or anything, or you just get out there and do it? Oh, look, I do always. Okay, uh, I, I've I've always done it, you know. Uh, but then I've got to I've got to be uh, be honest. I attempt to do songs that most people don't don't do. Right, um, and the songs that most people do, I. I can do without. I can do it on my ears. So yeah. it's it's just for me. It's just a just the way I've always worked. I like to try and do a bit bit more, if you know what I mean. A the, bit harder. A bit more demanding. Uh, a bit more vocally challenging. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. 
the mm-hmm. rule. Um, I, I don't know. I, I guess it, it it was started when I was very young, and I just fell in love with with uh, crying and running scared and uh, town without pity and uh, um, I'm going to be strong. Uh, you know, that, those big contemporary ballads, you've lost that love and feeling, those big contemporary ballads that, uh, that were just so great. Well, it's one of, you, one of the albums which, which um, you've got here, which is called Straight to the Heart, Yes. And I've got to tell you, it kind of makes me sad because I agree with you. You know, you're a, you're an artist, and you should be paid for your work. And when you when you look on Spotify, and here's an album which you've done, and they're obviously all favourites of yours. Uh, you know, even the nights are better. Laughter in the rain. Hello, just the way you are. I heard this the other day, and I thought, wow, what an incredible album! And here it is on Spotify for anybody to just go out and listen to. And I'm, yeah, I'm really so what, glad that you didn't do that with your other one, you know, because if people want to hear your music, they should be prepared to pay for it. Well, that's right. I mean, they're paying through Spotify, but I, I think you end up seeing about, you know, Thrupen's Hapney per 20,000 plays. It's, uh, it's, hard, it's hardly worthwhile being on. No. Yeah, I suppose in, in many ways. Yeah. And, and funnily enough, I didn't put that up there. That was put up there by Gil. Gil, uh, you'll have yeah. to you'll have to slap Gil. You'll have next time you catch up with Gil and you give him a slap around the ear and say, well, "Hey, how much money am I getting out of this on Spotify?" Well, Gil, who was Billy Thorpe's drummer for yeah, tw- yeah. Uh, for forty years, is my guitar player. Yeah. Now I wanted to ask you about that because I, I know Gil runs Aztec Records or Aztec Music in yep. Melbourne, and this is where this has come from, and all your other albums as well that 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 are on there, like um, Frenzy, the fiftieth anniversary collection, and uh, you know all these all these albums that are on there are on his um, catalogue. Where I look, I mention Gil every single week, and I play music from his catalogue every week because I've got most of his catalogue. Um, and I know him as an incredible drummer with Billy Thorpe. Now he plays guitar with you. And I, how did that yeah, come about? Yeah. He just well, he played guitar in bands uh, in his teenage years. Okay. He played with the guys in the Rondells, who were Bobby and Laurie's band. Right. Went to school with them. Okay. Um, so they had a band there, and he played guitar. Uh, but uh, obviously, he was he was a child prodigy. Drummer uh, and toured toured with Buddy Rich. Uh-huh. Um, for all you young players, you you need to go onto YouTube and and, and have a look at Buddy Rich's drumming Absolutely. because uh, <laughs> none of the guys who are playing bloody electronic drums can ever play like Buddy Rich. No, no. But but he was he was a prodigy, wasn't he? He was one of the original Mouseketeers, which is how he got his nickname Rats in for, yeah. for Billy Thorpe. And I got that from um, I got that from Warren Morgan. I was chatting with Warren Morgan about a year or so back um, when he was touring with the All Star Band with John Paul Young. And I asked him um, how candidly, how did he come about? You know, like I asked Warren, why did you become the pig and? Why did he become the rat? <laughs> and well, it, why did he become the pig? 
Did he tell you? Uh, well, yeah, but it's not really something I, I can mention on here. I don't think. I, right, asked, okay. I asked him candidly. I asked him candidly off air about that. Um, he told me about. He told me about Warren. Um, I'm sorry about Gil being a mouseketeer and calling him um, calling him um, you know rats. But um, yeah, I, I won't say. <laughs> I'll tell you later. <laughs> Okay. So what about tell us All a little right. bit more about your incredible band before you go because you still you still work with Gil and you've still got this other band and I know you said when we spoke before Gil's your guitar player who's a drummer and you've got other band members who play other instruments and um, Yeah, well my band is a band that shouldn't exist because I've got a trumpet player who plays drums. Right. But but he's also he's been he was the player the drummer on Normie Run the Playboys uh all of the hits, okay. uh, and no, nobody plays those songs no. like he plays them. Yep. Um, uh, he was given a, a great compliment by a wonderful bass player um, uh, recently, and he, and it, and I, he said it to me, actually. He said, I loved playing with Trotter because he doesn't play the drums like everybody else. He plays the song. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And okay. that, to me, that's a, that's a real compliment. Indeed. Indeed. <coughs> Fair enough. All right, mate. Look, I, I suppose I should let you go. I really, you've you've been so generous with your time, and I know you've got quite a lot on. So I I won't take up any more of your time, and I will, with your permission, because this music that you've given to me is not available anywhere unless they go to your official website. Um, Which is? Can we plug that? Yeah, absolutely. Go. You tell uh, us where you, the music's available, my friend. Okay, so it's available on. Uh, www. That's it. That's it, listeners. Very, very easy. Very simple. www.normyrow.com, and you can also go into Google because if they go into Google and type in Normy Row official website uh, on the Normy yes, Row official website, you've got your shop. You've got a, an extremely interesting bio for anybody that's uh, wanting to know about you. You've also got your shop there, and. Um, <laughs> Or and and as they come in, we've yes. got the gigs for the gigs that are that eventually will be of a <laughs> will will eventually be able to get up and do. Fantastic! I'm definitely I'm definitely looking forward because I know you guys are going to be in um, Foster and Port Macquarie. I think when this is all yes, we are yes yes. yes. So I definitely want to catch up with you three. I haven't spoken to Dinah yet. I want to. I want to get in touch with Dinah Lee. Um, uh, Jade gave me her number, so I'll be chatting. She's with a sweetheart. Absolutely. Yep, sweet. So where's Dinah Lee? What's you don't need to give me a phone number or address, but where whereabouts is Dinah now? Where did, what state does she uh, live? She's in, in the southern. Uh, in, in what do they call it? In the Shire, I think. Oh, in the Shire, indeed. All right. Well, that's good. That's sort of in New South Wales, around the Sydney area, around Cronulla. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'll track her down. Good as well. That'd be great. Mate, thank you so much for your time. So with your permission, because you didn't say yes, am I okay to play these these songs? Yeah, absolutely. Because what I'll do is I'm going to feature them in the program and I want to push people to your website and uh, try and get people to check out this this new album of yours uh, because, as I said, it's not available on any other platform and good on you for doing it, my friend. I I think it would be so much better if other people did it because the only way you're going to sell it is to sell it at your gigs or they buy it directly from you 
rather than listen to it on Spotify and you get three and eight minutes or whatever you said before. Three and, and you get minutes. something. Yeah, of you course. You get something. You of don't course. get. You don't just get a track downloaded. And and the other thing is that um, I I always sign the CDs that go out too. Well, maybe I'm definitely. I'll, I'll talk to you after we finish this because I'm. I'll definitely want to get something signed from you from this new one. I'm very happy to pay for it. I'm not. I'm not. You're an artist. You deserve to be paid for your work. But it would mean so much to me when I spoke to Lonnie. He gave me one signed, and I mean, I paid for it. Yeah. I, I said, no, no, no. You're an artist. You, you're entitled to your money. So I paid him, and he signed it for me. And the, getting the signature was worth every cent. So really, it's oh. well. What have you? Um, just send me an address. I will. I'll send you some stuff. I will. Nice. All right. Okay. Thank you so much, Normie, for your time. Normie Ray listeners, Australia's original king of pop.